Both sides in the Ukraine war are dramatically climbing the escalation ladder. Where is this war going? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be joined by Eugene Perrier. He's the host of the daily podcast, The Punch-Out. He's also can be seen every Thursday on the Freedom Side with Ronnie Kalik on Breakthrough News. He's an author, he's an activist. We've talked to Eugene numerous times about the escalating war in Ukraine. The last time on September 21st, we talked about the logic of escalation and why this war would widen, become bigger, escalate, impose new dangers. Eugene Perrier, welcome. Brian, thanks so much for having me back. Thank you. Eugene, we talked on September 21st. That's when Vladimir Putin made the speech announcing that he was calling up 300,000 more Russian reservists. That was after Ukraine launched a successful counteroffensive taking back some territory held by Russia in the northeast part of Ukraine. Since that time, there has been a terrorist attack on the Kerch Bridge that connects Crimea to the Russian mainland. There has been the sabotage of Nord Stream 2, the, the pipeline that brought Russian natural gas to Europe. Russia has carried out what it described as mass missile strikes against different targets in Ukraine, some of them far away from the Donbass. Anyway, I'm looking at the New York Times today, the headline, some Ukrainians brace for possibility of Russian nuclear strike. So as we were predicting, we didn't want our prediction to come true that there would be escalation. There is indeed real escalation. There's serious escalation happening. And I mean, we certainly saw when we were talking the last time this issue of nuclear war becoming a big issue, Biden then saying there is a nuclear Armageddon, but he has been forced to walk that back, actually, and recently told, I believe it was ABC News, that he does not believe Putin will use nuclear weapons. But essentially, Putin raising the, the broader issue that a conflict between great powers can ultimately lead to nuclear war led to then all of this, oh, well, Putin's actually using nuclear blackmail and the U.S. trying to really play up this issue of nuclear war. But then having to walk it back because it is so dangerous to be in that sort of situation. But I mean, it really is amazing if you think about it. I don't know if there's ever been a time since the Cuban Missile Crisis where there's been this much open conversation about the possibility of nuclear war between two major great powers. But the difference is it seemed in that context, neither power really wanted nuclear conflict. But here it almost seems like the United States has seized on this issue to, I don't know, try to improve the position somehow of Ukrainian forces by making Putin seem like a really, really bad guy willing to you know, use nuclear weapons and destroy the world. But that ability to try to sharpen their critique of Putin only has the impact of actually raising the possibility of nuclear war, hence why Biden had to make his comments. But you can see that there is a serious sort of playing with fire element and how this is all playing out. Obviously, there was the Kerch Bridge attack, which we can talk more about. There was the previous assassination of Daria Dugan. There was the Nord Stream 2 thing that you've brought out. There's the continued pumping of weapons into Ukraine. And the head of NATO, the head of the EU, they've all been talking more and more now about increasing the air defenses of Ukraine. Obviously, they've already given the missiles that and can air reach. defenses are really for offensive capability. If you can shoot the other guy's missiles down, that means you have sort of you know, you have free reign. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, already we've seen, you know, the possibility of missiles being used inside of the Russian territory by at least they have the capability of the Ukrainians. Even some conversations a couple of weeks ago about whether some Ukrainian soldiers had actually entered into Russia and attacked this small town, unconfirmed. But nevertheless, you can get a sense of how much we're there. And I list all that to say what has been coming from the Kremlin and their consistent statements are that they see this as really becoming a NATO Russia conflict, not a Ukraine conflict. And they have essentially been saying to NATO, the more you escalate, the more you're making yourself a party to the conflict. And the more you make yourself a party to the conflict, the more it really raises the specter of this great power conflict that could lead to nuclear war. You've got Poland, which is one of the most anti-Russian governments on the European continent, has been one of the most bellicose from the very beginning, has also been one of the countries that has done the most to try to rehabilitate the image of these Nazi war criminals that come from Poland and Ukraine and other places. They now want to place U.S 
U.S. nuclear weapons in Poland because there's a NATO program called nuclear sharing where you can have U.S. weapons placed as a forward deployment in your area. Sadly, 54 percent of Poles have come out in a recent poll, sorry for that, to say that they agree with that. So you can see right there, this is a country that's basically directly adjacent to the conflict that's a member of NATO now saying, put nuclear weapons here in Poland. I mean, you can shoot a nuclear weapon in Russia from the United States. So it just shows how aggressive that really is. It has no tactical significance whatsoever in terms of nuclear warfare, but it does, again, raise the specter. So increasingly, we're having multiple players stoke the conflict. And again, Regardless of the level of intentionality on either side, this is that concept of the escalation ladder. If one party goes up, it's easier to go up than it is to come down. So the longer the conflict goes forward without any form of mediation or talks or possibility of peace, the more this is becoming a factor that really the world could be destroyed in a, in a nuclear conflict. Yeah, Putin is going to be meeting with Erdogan, the head of state in Turkey, and Russia is indicating that they are actually interested in negotiations, which you would never know if you watch the U.S. media. We're going to talk about what the Russian plan for negotiations might be and also why the U.S. doesn't seem interested. They prefer this nuclear chicken game. But one of the things that's really important about U.S. politics is that it's not just the politicians. It's also the media. And I want to play a couple clips from mainstream media. The first one is from CNN. Now, this is in response to the terrorist truck bomb. Apparently, it was a truck bomb that blew up on the Kerch Bridge. It's a 12-mile-long bridge. It links the mainland of Russia to Crimea. And Crimea was always part of Russia until Khrushchev and the Soviet leadership transferred it administratively in 1954 when Ukraine and Russia were one country, the Soviet Union. Up until that time, Crimea was always Russia. Right. So the Russians built this bridge 12 miles long. Putin actually drove a truck across it on its christening in, I think, in 2018. So it's a, a road and also a freight connection between Crimea Peninsula and Russia. So this big explosion happens while there's traffic on the bridge. People are killed. It's obviously a terrorist act by any definition. Right. Watch how CNN covers this terrorist attack, because you can see from the U.S. media, and this is my point, the U.S. media is cheerleading for escalation, including terrorist actions on a roadway, on a bridge. Let's listen. A devastating blow to Vladimir Putin's war effort in Ukraine, both strategically and symbolically. The Kerch Bridge that links Russia's mainland with occupied Crimea on fire and heavily damaged. Moscow's investigative committee acknowledging the severity of the attack. According to preliminary information, a truck exploded on the automobile part of the Crimean bridge from the side of the Tarman Peninsula in the morning today, which caused seven fuel tanks to ignite on a train heading towards the Crimean Peninsula. As a result, two lanes partially collapsed. This CCTV video appears to show the moment of the blast. A truck is seen driving on the lane leading towards Crimea when all of a sudden there's a massive explosion, though it's not clear whether it is the truck that actually blew up. Russian officials saying several people were killed in the attack. Moscow already pointing the finger at Ukraine, but so far no claim of responsibility from Kiev's leadership. Crimea, the bridge, the beginning. Everything illegal must be destroyed. Everything stolen must be returned to Ukraine. Everything occupied by Russia must be expelled, an advisor to Ukraine's president tweeted. While Russian authorities say fuel and food supplies to Crimea are insured, videos released on social media show long lines forming at gas stations on the peninsula just hours after the blast. The Crimean Bridge is a vital supply artery for Russian forces fighting in Ukraine, but it's also a prestige project for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin personally drove a truck across the bridge when it was opened in 2018. The attack came just a day after Putin's 70th birthday, leading Ukraine's national security advisor to tweet this video, apparently mocking Russia's leader. Ukraine's Postal Service was quick to issue a stamp commemorating the bridge explosion. Residents in the capital taking selfies in front of the main post office. Eugene, I played this clip a couple days ago. I wanted to play it again yeah. because 
there's a few things that jump out. One is the celebrative tone of CNN. You know, if it was like an American roadway that had been bombed with people on it driving, if it was the Chesapeake Bay Bridge mm -hmm. where people from Washington, where I live, were going out to the Eastern Shore, you wouldn't hear that kind of coverage from CNN. But there's the other element, the taunting of Russia about the, the terrorist attack that breaks up the bridge. You have the Ukrainian officials playing Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday, Mr. President, because the attack happened the day of or the day after Putin's birthday. And also the Ukrainians make a postage stamp out of it. I mean, when I was reading this New York Times article about mm -hmm. Ukrainians bracing for a possible nuclear war, I think the Ukrainians are not happy that their government, in conjunction with the U.S. and NATO, are doing something like this, which is provoking Russia to also escalate. I mean, they're going to be the ones who suffer. Sure. No, I mean, I think a few things. I mean, you know, all you have to really do is compare the tone of that report to every report about a Russian missile strike anywhere in Ukraine. I mean, one thing that certainly the Russians have been saying from the beginning, but has been confirmed by Amnesty International, is that the Ukrainians are deliberately placing a number of their various military emplacements near civilian targets to try to, more or less, keep the Russians from attacking those military targets. It's obviously, you know, a well-known strategy and sort of military reality, but nevertheless, it's the type of thing that also leads to civilian casualties. Now, anytime there's a Russian attack on anything in Ukraine, it's all about how it was this horrible terrorist type attack on civilians. It killed all these people. They quote a million different people on how this is a huge war crime. But here, and even though people have been calling this a war crime, and it is an attack on civilians, and it is a similar, and perhaps even more so than some of the targets in Kiev, but let's just say on the same plane of civilian targets adjacent to potential military uses, or that can be sort of put in dual purpose. There's no major denunciation of this as a war crime from any individual, even the Russian side of things. The only Russian who speaks is just to describe that the Russians are saying that it's serious. There's an almost like kind of matter of fact, I'm reporting the ducks in the park kind of tone to the guy, you know, then just sort of laying certain things out, the Marilyn Monroe thing, the stamp thing, and not looking at it or describing it as any form of taunting or whatever it may have been. But nevertheless, all of the U.S. media was saying the Russian warmongers are, are so excited about the Russian attacks allegedly in response to this and saying that they're taunting and doing all these different things. So even though I think if we went to CNN, they'd say, oh, well, it's just straight news. We're just reporting exactly what happened. Isn't that what happened? You can see how duplicitous it is because the tone of it and the nature of exactly how they report it is totally different in that reality. But there's really no functional difference between this or, for instance, the recent Ukrainian attack on a hotel known to have international journalists in the Donbass. There's no actual difference between that and any of the things that are routinely denounced vis-a-vis -vis Russia's attacks on Ukraine via missiles and airstrikes and the like. But nevertheless, they want to give the perception that Ukraine is good and that Russia is bad. And one other thing that I think is so notable and important about this and how delusional the Western media is in terms of the way the world sees this conflict is by the end of the day, Ukraine had gone from celebrating this attack to claiming it was a Russian false flag. Because obviously, here you are, you use a car bomb on a bridge with a number of civilians, several people die, could have undoubtedly probably been far worse in terms of the number of civilians who were killed. It looks, feels, smells like a terrorist attack. And perhaps in the West, it's easy to celebrate these things because there's so much of this CNN-style propaganda, but I think around the world, it looks very differently. And so then by the second half of the day, you have the Ukrainian government saying, oh, well, it actually wasn't us, it was a Russian false flag. And you know, allegedly, you know, the Russians bombed Nord Stream 2, they bombed their own bridge, they did everything. But you can see that obviously the Ukrainian officials were reacting to something other than CNN in the context of how their day was going and now looking to distance themselves from the attack because they recognize that just like many of the things they denounce about Russia, that this could be used to say, well, are they morally any actually better than Putin? And that issue of moral equivalence is absolutely critical for Ukraine because their war effort completely collapses unless Putin is the world's biggest devil in the history. You know, he's the devil, he's Frankenstein, he's, you you know, Nosferatu all rolled into one combined with the Chupacabra and Hitler. And if you can't have that kind of reality of, of who he is, then the entire rationale around the war starts to fray. People start to ask what this is really about. And then we start to get into the things that we talked about in the early stages of this war on this show about the long history of NATO and all these different pieces. So I thought that was an interesting statement, how the Ukrainian government sort of flipped the story, mm. obviously, because I think they saw that it was going to have a major negative impact and that maybe they can fool the CNNs or not fool them. They can count on the complicity of the CNNs of the world. But I think for a lot of people, you look at this and it seems like, wow, this is not a justified military attack. Yeah. And the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian people who are on the receiving end of this war. And I, again, you've said it over and over again. The U.S. and NATO are 
are ready to fight to the last Ukrainian. And there's no political liability in the United States because Americans are not dying. If Americans were dying in this U.S.-led war against Russia in Ukraine, there'd be huge demonstrations in the United States. Hundreds of thousands of people would come out against it and say, well, like, why are we doing this? Why are we playing with fire and having young men and women in the United States get killed for another war, you know? And as long as it's Ukrainians, like no political liability. And the other thing that you're mentioning that I think is so important is the demonization of Russia and Putin is so complete as it was with Saddam Hussein, so that the US government could with a straight face tell the American people, we do have to send Americans to fight and die in Iraq because Saddam Hussein is gonna hurt you because he has weapons of mass destruction. He was so demonized. I remember when we were still able to go on mainstream cable network news and say, look, because I had followed Iraq closely, Saddam Hussein does not have weapons of mass destruction. This was in the months before the U.S. invasion in 2003. And the people on the other side of the desk in CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, and we were on all those channels, they would say, oh, you're acting like an Iraqi espionage agent Hmm. because I was telling the truth. We were telling the truth. So the demonization is so complete that it makes the American people vulnerable to just accept anything that the U.S. government says. Now, let's talk about Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 is this very important pipeline built over many decades, Nord Stream 1 and 2, that brings natural gas to Europe. And that's how Europe has been able to afford home heating oil. Now they can't. So that Nord Stream 2 has been detonated. It's been blown up. There was sabotage. And the U.S. said, oh, we think the Russians blew it up, as if the Russians would blow up their own pipeline. I want to play another audio clip. This is Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State. By the way, his father was a famous Cold Warrior, too. Mm-hmm. So like father, like son. <laughs> uh, but I want to have people hear how yeah. Anthony Blinken talks about the sabotage of Nord Stream 2. This is a like in the United States, if you're an environmental activist and you do civil disobedience at a pipeline, Just civil disobedience, peaceful action. You might go to jail for years. It's felony to interfere with critical infrastructure. Now, this was the bombing of a pipeline that brought natural gas to Europe. Listen to how Anthony Blinken and the U.S. media treat that event. Ultimately, um, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from uh, Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant, and that offers tremendous um, strategic opportunity for, um, for the years to come. But meanwhile, we're determined to do everything we possibly can uh, to make sure that the consequences of all of this are not borne by citizens in our countries, or for that matter. A strategic opportunity? That's what it is. (laughs) And from his perspective, and as cynical as that comes across, I think it actually helps us unlock a lot of the key of this conflict. I mean, you know, we mentioned multiple times on this this show, I wrote an article called Is NATO to Blame? Explaining the lead up to the war and how it came from. But what's important to note is that since 1989, at the highest levels of U.S. foreign policy establishment in the State Department, the White House, and the Pentagon, the basic question has been how to, in the words of Brent Scowcroft, who was the national security advisor, for George H.W. Bush, make sure America can get in between Germany and Russia. That one of the biggest fears of the United States in the post-Soviet era is that with the sort of dissipation of, of tension between Western and Eastern Europe, that Russia and the Western European countries will reach a modus vivendi, basically an energy and industrialization partnership that would allow Europe to pursue an independent foreign policy of the United States. So one of the most noted things in all these conversations about the eastward expansion of NATO, especially especially in the earliest stages, was to make sure that that did not happen. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the issue of Germany especially, but the broader European industrial powerhouse, how was Europe able to maintain itself in the face of countries like China and other rising powers as an industrial power, while the U.S., of course, was massively de-industrializing? Well, one of the main reasons, beyond just their broader policy, was they were able to get a significant amount of cheap energy, mainly from Russia, but then in contradistinction with a number of different countries. That's why there's a bunch of pipelines running into Europe, and that they had 
this sort of broad spectrum of cheap energy they were bringing in that could help keep the costs low for these, you know, the really the German industrialization machine, but also Spain, France, Belgium, Netherlands, Austria, and so on, and Switzerland, Italy, and so on and so forth. And so this is really predicated. So when when Blinken says this is a strategic opportunity, that's actually what he really means. I mean, the prime minister of Belgium told the Financial Times last week that Europe is on the brink of total deindustrialization because the energy crisis is going to be so intense, businesses will not be able to operate. This is something that German trade unions have also said. It's something that many analysts have also talked about, that this could actually completely destroy Europe's economy to a a position where it could not really recover. And ultimately what that means is Europe will then become extraordinarily dependent on American oil and gas, right. which they're already buying a huge amount of right now in order to keep something going in terms of the broader economic sphere for Europe, to keep the continent from having total collapse. So two things will happen. Europe will lose its ability to become an independent player on the world stage, which it's you know essentially cut its own throat for. But by not having the Russian energy, and also, by the way, even though it's been a little bit quiet, signing up to the Biden administration and Trump administration aggression towards China, which has been happening vis-a-vis NATO and other things like that. So Europe will lose its ability for independent power projection or foreign policy and become essentially a total vassal of the United States, not just in policy, but in practice. And also on that note, the United States will become the greatest beneficiary of this because they are one of the only powers that will be able to step in. I mean, obviously there's other people who sell oil and gas, but the U.S. is a huge producer and they will try to step in in a big way to really replace They won't be able to replace all the Russian supplies, but some of them, which means that Europe will then be really tied by a tether to the United States. So even though Blinken is actually trying to put this in the context of, oh, we can have more clean energy, it's going to be good for Europe, they're going to be able to act more independently, the reality is is there is no way there can be a 100% transition to clean energy quickly enough to actually make this something that frees Europe. It's going to make it more and more dependent, primarily on the United States. It's going to cut off their ability to have any sort of strategic independence. So for the U.S., it is a great fantastic strategic opportunity, which is why we should note that there was, in the weeks immediately prior to the destruction of Nord Stream 2, NATO activity on the floor of the Baltic Sea with the exact type of capabilities you would need to do this. And then, of course, there is direct evidence. Jeffrey Sachs, by the way, big-time academic in America, was hustled off Bloomberg for raising this issue where U.S. helicopters flying out of naval facilities in Poland were right over the area where it took place. And when you look at all that and you put it together— The culprit seems pretty clear, especially, and this is, I'll close here to double down on your point about Russia doing it. The only other pipelines that go from Russia into Europe, well, there's one that comes through Turkey, but by and large, they come through Ukraine and Poland. And Ukraine and Poland have in the past, I mean, forget right now, but have in the past used that as leverage against both Western Europe and against Russia. And now essentially they're going to be able to use it against Russia and Western Europe because they'll be able to say to Western Europe, give us arms or we'll cut off the gas that you're bringing in because a lot of the stuff on the pipeline is actually not sanctioned because Europe is so dependent on this. And then they'll be able to say to Russia, negotiate with us or we'll cut off your money. Now, what it'll play out that way, I don't know. But why Russia would take away its strategic ability, as they were saying, will give the gas to Germany, their strategic ability to get into the enemy's rear, if you will, and impact public opinion in Europe by turning the gas flow on. Why would they do that? It makes no sense. So you look at motive, opportunity, it all points towards somebody in the Western sphere taking this on. But I think it's tremendously, tremendously devastating for the people of Western Europe who are just added to the list of people from the Ukrainian people themselves, to the people of Western Europe, to the people starving around the world because of the crisis created by sanctions around food deliveries. I mean, essentially, the U.S. and European NATO-affiliated elites are willing to sacrifice every working class and poor person on the earth. Every country, the goods are skyrocketing, people are being thrown out of work, businesses closing down, everyone talking about the cost of living crisis. They're willing to sacrifice every poor and working class person on earth to try to weaken Russia to make sure that Russia can't play a role on the world stage that would allow them to challenge this Western NATO hegemony. It's extraordinarily cynical, but when you say strategic opportunity, that's what Blinken really means, is that this is great for their project to try to control the world, no matter who it hurts, no matter what the consequences. I'm glad you raised this, Eugene, because you know I want people to really think about what the U.S. priority is here. They're willing to sacrifice Europe in the name of helping Europe, in the name of keeping Europe and Ukrainians safe, By the way, they did the same thing during the Soviet period. There was no invasion of Ukraine at that time. Ukraine and Russia were one. But the U.S. was heavily sanctioning the Soviet Union so they couldn't build the pipeline because they didn't want Europe to be 
have a mutually beneficial relationship with what was then the Soviet Union. Led to a great victory for the Soviets, too, where they developed their own uh, they, turbines. They developed their own turbines. They had to develop their own self-sufficiency. That was the thing about the Soviet Union, all of the sanctions, the blockades. The Soviet Union was the most embargoed country in the world, maybe with the exception of Cuba. And they had to, you know, use self-reliant technologies. Luckily, the Soviet Union had a big enough space and natural resources that it could do it. Yeah. But I want to go back to the issue of priorities because think about war and peace and also avoiding climate catastrophe. Like what should be the priority of the U.S. government right now? We obviously know from the scientists, from the U.N., from international agencies that we have already sort of crossed many red lines and we are at the point of existential danger when it comes to climate catastrophe caused by the use of fossil fuels. At this moment, in the last weeks, as the United States cut Europe off from Russia and its natural gas, and as the sabotage of the pipeline happened, the same Biden administration went to Saudi Arabia and said, start pumping more oil, pump more oil. And if you don't, that'll show that you're complicit with Russia. So at this moment, the U.S. wants to not decrease the production of fossil fuels, but increase it because the priority for U.S. imperialism is not to avoid climate catastrophe. The real priority for U.S. imperialism is to fight against Russia and China, meaning major power conflict for the benefit of maintaining the empire is more important in real terms as a priority than stopping climate change. I think that's crucially important. I mean, the sanctions on Russian oil and gas, which are the key factor that has really caused, I mean, that war is a factor, but it's really the sanctions that have caused the price to skyrocket. The attempt by the United States, and this is also another little tricky piece they're doing, to destroy OPEC and OPEC Plus by creating a buyer's cartel, that's also increasing the prices because you can see how OPEC Plus reacted by cutting the number of barrels of oil and essentially saying they are willing to go into an economic war with the West over their, I mean, they have total control over the oil prices. They don't want to lose that. That's the entire basis of these Gulf monarchies and other countries having any sort of budget or economy. So you have all these factors coming together. Plus, you have the U.S. government saying that they are going to try to increase oil production and encouraging people around the world to do the same. And it has a multi-layered impact. But the most important one is when you think about investment. One of the things that had been starting to happen in the oil and gas industry is they were considered high-risk investments. And so when you look at the oil and gas industry right now, and they're making these big profits, you'll note one thing they're doing is doing big dividends and big share buybacks to make their stock more attractive. Because what investors had basically been saying towards especially Western oil majors is the world is moving towards a clean energy transition. More and more people are recognizing we have to move away from fossil fuels. So we don't really want you to invest too much in new assets. Just get as much as you can out of whatever you have right now. And ultimately, investors didn't want to be stuck out with a lot of stranded assets. But now with these long periods of accelerated high oil prices and high gas prices, that means that will start to shift in the market. And more people will think, well, okay, if there's going to be this sort of permanent sanction-style Cold War between the U.S. and Russia that is going to stoke you know, the need for Europe to have significantly more oil and gas, that means that some of these projects that might have looked like potential stranded assets, potential white elephants, because everybody's drilling for oil and gas now, and a lot of them, it looked like it wasn't going to succeed. Well, hey, maybe that thing off the coast of Mozambique, that could make sense. Maybe a company like Pemex or Petrobras in Latin America, they actually could do a lot more for us. The oil blocks that are potentially being sold in the Congo, 27 oil blocks there in the the heart of one of the most important environmental resources on the African continent. That's going to get snapped up and it'll get snapped up very quickly. So it's not even just the issue of getting people to pump out more in terms of their current capacity. It's mm. actually changing the investment landscape around fossil fuels to start to push back against what was starting to become a negative trend. I mean, if you think about it, this is the big critique that Republicans have of Biden's appointees to the Federal Reserve, or one of them, Sarah Bloom Raskin, is that they were saying, oh, all these people just want to start to move away from fossil fuels. And the economy is starting to, you know, BlackRock is always attacked by these conservatives for promoting ESG, so-called environmental and socially responsible investing. And not really that. But nevertheless, you could see that that trend was hurting oil and gas companies. To the extent that reverses, there'll be more and more investment in new capacity, not just existing capacity, which then just makes it even harder to move away and have a real just transition, which, of course, also cannot happen because the U.S. and Europe are refusing to meet their fair share in climate finance to make it possible for countries who contribute 
nothing to global climate change in the global south and are deeply impoverished to be able to grow their own economies, improve their own people's livelihoods without using fossil fuels. But without that, these countries are basically forced to sell fossil fuels to the world market to take advantage of this, to keep their people from living in poverty. They don't have another choice, but the Biden administration could care less. Whether the planet burns, whether everyone is, you know, starving, doesn't matter. The only thing that really matters is to make sure that Russia and China cannot play a role that counters U.S. hegemony. I'm so glad you brought that up and sort of filled it out because you're right. The investment landscape changes. So, you know, investing in oil becomes very, very, very attractive going forward. So again, for our audience, if you care about the environment, you also have to care about the issue of war and peace. Just denouncing Putin, and again, we have said over and over again, we weren't like cheerleaders for the Russian military operation or the Russian invasion into Ukraine. We, we were trying to establish the responsibility for this February 24th decision to intervene in Ukraine we place the onus on NATO and the United States, which is really the leader of NATO, for recklessly expanding NATO east such that Russia was and Russia was demanding negotiations and giving you know Russia's legitimate security concerns a hearing so that Ukraine could be a neutral country rather than like, you know, stock filled with with nuclear and conventional weapons pointed at Russia that would reach their targets in a few minutes. We've been saying we were not great about the war. We wanted we were hoping that there would be more opposition in Europe. The invasion by Russia into Ukraine has united all of the imperialists under the United States. That's from a strategic point of view and a tactical point of view, very deleterious from the point of view of Russia's interest. So, but the point that we're making here is that those people who don't want war, who want peace in Ukraine, you have to look at all of these factors. Just looking at Russia's decision to invade on February 24th, that's not enough. Look at NATO expansion to the east for 20 years. Look at the, the coup in Ukraine in 2014 that overthrew a, a neutral government. Look at what you're talking about in terms of what its impact will be on climate catastrophe and the environment. And then, Eugene, obviously, Putin made a shift. You know, for eight years after the coup, the Russian government under Putin did not recognize the independent people's republics in the Donbass, the Russian-speaking, ethnically Russian part of the eastern Ukraine that were being basically slaughtered by the far-right Ukrainians. And finally, when Russia decided to come into Ukraine, Russia also said, we're going to protect the people in the Donbass. They're part of the Russian motherland, et cetera, et cetera. And then they've had this referendum now in these four areas that Russia militarily controls and the people are voting and Russia has basically annexed these four areas. I want to play another clip. It's our last clip, but it's Anthony Blinken again, back on center stage here talking about how upset the United States is that anyone would use military force to change the borders in modern times. There's two clips. That's about Russia. And the second clip is from a year ago where Anthony Blinken was asked a question by Wolf Blitzer on CNN about the annexation of Syria's Golan Heights by Israel, which Israel seized in the 1967 war which the United States paid for, and it was U.S. weapons, and the U.S. supported Israel. Listen to how Anthony Blinken contrasts these two annexations, and then I want to get your comments. Mm. Defending Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity is about much more than standing up for one nation's right to choose its own path. Fundamental as that right is. It's also about protecting an international order where no nation can redraw the borders of another by force. The Trump administration, as you know, also recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which Israel captured from Syria back in 1967. Uh, will your administration, the Biden administration, continue to see the Golan Heights as part of Israel? Look, leaving aside the legalities uh, of, that, uh, of, of that question, as a practical matter, uh, the, uh, the Golan is very important to uh, Israel's uh, security as long as Assad is in power in Syria, as long as uh, Iran is present. So putting aside the legalities, I, I mean, that I think is the most notable factor because he's essentially admitting like this is illegal on the basis of international law, but we don't care because we put the interest of Israel's apartheid state over and above the international legal obligations that we are duty bound by treaty to uphold and enforce. So right there just gives you a sense that the U.S. is willing to operate 
totally lawlessly. And let's not forget that Wolf Blitzer, who he's talking to there, is a former spokesperson for APAC. So again, something about the U.S. media in terms of how these things are framed. Although, you know, it is a good question to ask. So I, you know, won't take anything away from the question. But it does show, I mean, the United States is more than happy for people to use force to change any border at any time, as long as it's the one they want. And especially when it comes to Israel, which the United States is on record, essentially, as agreeing with many of these things, like the settlements, the Golan Heights being totally illegal, but then does every possible thing they can do to facilitate the consolidation of these, again, totally illegal international apartheid settlements by international law, apartheid settlements that are happening there. And it just, again, this speaks to the issue of, you know, what is actually going on in terms of why people aren't supporting this outside of the West. I mean, you know, the Saudis, who are like the closest U.S. allies in many ways, the Saudi oil minister, apparently told the Indonesian, I believe, economy minister, maybe foreign minister recently, that one of the reasons they're so upset about this oil price cap is like, well, if they do it to Russia, who are they going to do it to next? And it's that the fact that the U.S. policies are so lawless that even their closest allies feel like, well, wow, what can we possibly expect from even our so-called friends? Like, if we do anything wrong, they'll destroy us, and they have no impunity, no compunction. And these are just the top leaders. But for the average rank-and-file person in the Arab world and Africa and Latin America and India and China, it's just, like, so obviously hypocritical that it's, you know, in some senses, I think, laughable, shocking, angering. People probably have a whole range of different pieces. But right there, it just shows how the war is about everything other than what they claim it's about. Because because if it was about the broader principles, and we keep hearing this from Biden in his speech, we don't want big nations to invade small nations. They're backing big nations invading small nations and small nations invading big nations all over the world. And the U.S. is a big nation invading small nations. So we keep hearing this highfalutin rhetoric about how you have to stand up to Russia because it's about the interest of small nations over big nations. It's about national sovereignty. It's about people being able to be in any sort of alliance they want. Well, then the U.S. acts in a completely contradictory way. I mean, when Blinken went to South Africa, he says, oh, we're not making African countries choose between Russia and the West. But then just before he was there, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. is in Africa and says, you can't buy Russian oil. You can only buy the Russian products. We say you can. So the level of hypocrisy is incredible in so many different ways. But again, it does speak to this issue of escalation, which is deeply concerning. Obviously, this sort of rushed annexation is obviously designed to put Russia in a position to say, this is Russia, not Ukraine, which again, raises the stakes vis-a-vis the NATO forces who are helping Ukraine. And whether they say it or whether they don't say it, undoubtedly in the Pentagon, in the State Department, in the Alize Palace, everywhere, they're probably thinking, okay, you know, three months ago, launching XYZ missile into a city in Donbass and doing that, fine, no big deal. If Ukraine does it now, this might look bad. I mean, I don't know if this is true. I can't say it, but the Western media is reporting it, that the U.S. kind of like slapped the ruler on the, the knuckles of Ukraine over the murder of Daria Dugan saying, hey, you know, this is maybe a little too far. And I think you can even see from the Pentagon, which is sort of always downplaying the Ukrainian military operations. And I don't think it's because they don't support them, but I think they, to some degree, are fearful that the thing could get out of control and that especially now with these areas being officially a part of Russia, it could much more quickly become a NATO versus Russia thing that then again brings nuclear conflict back into the table. So it's a big escalation, even though I think for a lot of people it just seems like a weird geopolitical thing. Changing the nature of where the sort of sovereignty line is for Russia opens up a whole new can of worms. And I think this is what Russia's hoping for. It opens up a whole new can of worms of considerations for the West about whether or not maybe they should pull back because some of this could look a little dangerous in terms of actually like who the belligerent parties turn out to be in terms of the Western military assistance towards Ukraine. And it's not a coincidence that the Russians are making a bigger deal of how aggressively the NATO forces are helping Ukraine, because I think these two things are working together because they're trying to change the calculus for the West in terms of what the real risks are of continuing the conflict for, you know, in perpetuity, which seems to be what the U.S. is saying. Blinken said, when the time is right, Ukraine should negotiate. So basically, when we feel Russia's down on the mat enough, we'll start to pull back. And I think Russia is starting to say, that's not how this is going to work. So it's another sort of there's a lot of ranging issues about whether it's legitimate, illegitimate. But I think from the point of view of the conflict, what's most important is that it does represent a pivot point where Russia is really escalating, raising the stakes in the face of Ukraine, in the face of NATO and this Ukrainian opposition. And then also in the context of them calling up more troops, we're again reaching another opportunity where instead of turning away from war, it seems like we're even going into a deeper aspect of the morass.
One of the problems for people in the United States, for the working class in the United States, for the population in the United States, is that in the context of demonization, you never actually get to hear Putin. Putin is the devil, so why would you care what the devil says, right? The, yeah. He's the demon. He's, whatever he's saying, if it sounds good, he's just a lie anyway, so don't on, believe it. On him. September 21st, when he did the next escalation after the Ukrainian, the U.S.-led Ukrainian counteroffensive captured some of the territory that Russia had held in the Northeast, and Putin announces 300,000 more Russians are being called up. I want to just read a couple sentences about what he said. The goal of that part of the West, meaning the U.S., is to weaken, divide, and ultimately destroy our country. They are saying openly now that in 1991 they managed to split up the Soviet Union, and now is the time to do the same to Russia, which must be divided into numerous regions that would be a deadly feud with each other. And then he goes on and talks about how the regime in Kiev refused to settle the conflict in the east where there are Russian-speaking people. 14,000 people died since the coup, the right-wing coup took power in 2014. And then he says, in connection with this, we're launching the preemptive military operation, or we launched the preemptive military operation. Now, when you hear the political leaders in the United States, they never go on national TV and say, look, Russia is trying to divide our country. Like, that's not happening because nobody would believe that. Nobody would think, like, Russia's on the march, Russia's on our borders. But the U.S. is actually on Russia's borders. Ukraine, which was the second biggest republic in the Soviet Union, and historically also Russia and Ukraine were one, one place. I mean, Kiev at one time was the, the capital of Russia. To take Ukraine, which was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, and make it into a, a forward pre-positioned place for American missiles— including nuclear missiles that target Russia. I mean, there's no equivalency here. And that's why I think you don't have to be a friend of Vladimir Putin. You don't have to think it's a good idea that the Russians went into Ukraine. But listen to what the Russians are saying, because what they're saying is actually noteworthy because it gives you a sense, and it's not random on their part, of what they actually think is going on. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, and again, I'll just say, if people want to know, you can go to liberationnews.org and see my article, Is NATO to Blame? And you can see this in a huge way. But the entire reason that the first Bush administration did not announce anything in terms of an eastward march in NATO is they thought that that would be so provocative towards the Soviet people at that time, the Soviet Union had not collapsed, that it would actually reverse the trends under Gorbachev of rolling back the Soviet Union and ultimately breaking it up. And that it would actually reinvigorate the Soviet Union vis-a-vis the sort of broader Cold War scenario. So, I mean, that's how potent they thought the thing could be. But obviously, this is something that had been consistently warned about across the 90s. I mean, you know, as recently as 2014, you had Lavrov telling U.S. officials, like, if you keep going forward with this NATO and Ukraine thing, we're going to have to choose and there could be a war. So there is no doubt that the Eastern policies, and again, I just encourage people, I don't want to go through the whole thing here now, to read my piece about is NATO to blame? Because really, you can see H.W. Bush, Clinton, George Bush, Obama, Trump, they all had one continuum of this desire to push NATO ever eastward. They were well aware of the fact that it could potentially lead to war, and they decided they did not care because the most important thing for them was to contain Russia. And the Clinton administration was highly duplicitous about the way that they carried this out. And even the most liberal pro-West Western Russians were questioning the Clinton administration in the 90s saying, what are you doing? What is this plan? People who agree with you on Chechnya, which at that time there was the war in the mid 90s, people who agree with you on the economic partnership, blah, blah, blah. They're shocked that you would want to push NATO eastward because this is so provocative. This is so provocative on so many different levels. So there is no equivalency at all. I mean, the thing that's often trotted out here, I don't think it's the best example, but it's a notable one that people lay out. What would America do if there were Russian missiles in Mexico right on the border? And I do think that helps you frame the conflict, but it's actually worse than that because Mexico has never invaded the United States. The United States invaded Mexico and stole a lot of their land. Mexico has never invaded the United States. But Western powers multiple times have invaded Russia and the Soviet Union through these exact routes, through these exact marches, empowering the same political forces, this, you know, ne'er-do-wells of people who love these old monarchical, anti-Semitic, black hundreds type of governments that allied with the Nazis in World War II, the same type of people who love and put that heritage over the four million Ukrainians who died fighting the Nazis, right? So the people who want to glorify the most reactionary, hateful, 
anti-Semitic forces in Eastern Europe. These are the people who they're the government of Poland, the government of Ukraine. These are the people who are being relied upon to mount the ideological offensive against Russia because it's all about how these, you know, poor Eastern European and Central European countries are menaced by Russia. So, I mean, ultimately, when you look at it, not only are they pushing military forces all the way up to their border, but they're doing it in conjunction with the political forces who are associated with some of the most odious moments on earth, but certainly in wars towards Russia, and in fact, collaborating with them in their absurd attempt, you know, to make the Holocaust good. I mean, you know, listen, this is something that hasn't been discussed, but Poland especially, but also Ukraine, mm-hmm. over the past five or six years, have been going way out of their way to wage this battle in the European Parliament and also the Canadian Parliament, which sadly agreed to this, to say that communism and Nazism are the same. And the reason they do that is because they want these Nazis like Stepan Bandera to then be, they're, oh, they're just nationalists. And maybe they shouldn't have done this or that, but they were not the same as Hitler when they were. They were some of his biggest foot soldiers in this region, but they've been doing this to prepare the ideological environment to this attack on Russia. So when you put all that together, and remember in September of 2021, the United States said that they were going to do everything possible to support Ukraine joining NATO, that they were going to form a new military partnership that would be NATO-like and pump more weapons into there. So you've got aggressive escalation. You've got it in conjunction with some of the forces that are terrible now and historically also terrible and associated with some of the most devastating moments in Russian history. And this is where you end up. I mean, it's not that surprising. It's not that shocking. It was 100% deliberate. It was well warned against and known as far back as 1989 that this was the most provocative policy that could be adopted towards Russia, one of the world's nuclear powers. And yet and still, the Western media is still trying to present this, as are these Western governments, as some sort of evil Russian plot to control Europe. I mean, it's so black and white from the reality of what's actually happening there. It's almost amazing. But it's one of those things where you have to have a lie this big because anything else wouldn't be believable. You have to go with something so fantastical that people will say, well, you couldn't even make that up to make sure people don't actually start to look into the truth of the matter. So very dangerous situation. Right, right, right. I think that when we when we think about where we're going, Eugene, where this is really heading and the recklessness of the U.S. policy, and you think, well, they've needlessly provoked a war with Russia. I mean, Russia has acknowledged that they wanted to join NATO after, and Putin said so, and the U.S. said no. By the way, the Soviets in, in 1954 also said, well, let us join NATO and that will be a way of guaranteeing European security. And the U.S. said no. That's when the Soviet Union formed the Warsaw Pact with the socialist governments in Eastern and Central Europe and the Soviet Union that became the symmetrical sort of mirror of NATO in Europe. The U.S. at every step says no to peace. And then when you think about the point that you're making, they're relying on fascists, basically, anti-Semites, the, the apologists for genocide, the Nazi genocide. And that's what they are. They're apologists for genocide. And it makes you think back to 1979 and 1980 in Afghanistan, when you had a government in Afghanistan that said, look, we want to have a, a society where girls can go to school and where there can be a minimum wage and there can be basic land reform and we can get rid of illiteracy. But because that government was a socialist government and politically or diplomatically aligned with the Soviet Union, the U.S. supported Osama bin Laden and the people who became Al-Qaeda, the people who sent the planes into the World Trade Center. The U.S. didn't care that they were aligning with these reactionaries because the main goal was to stop the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Now the main goal is major power conflict with Russia and China. And all of us in the United States especially have to wake up and realize that the government is playing trick after trick, propaganda game after propaganda game to convince the people of the United States not to stand up and to use the tool of demonization so well in such an orchestrated and well-played way that the people of the United States don't challenge their own government. But we have to challenge our own government. I want to have, we're going to wrap up here, Eugene. I want to give you the last word. But because the U.S. is playing with fire, it's necessary for the people of the United States to come into action, to become politically involved. And I actually think that this will happen. Hopefully, it won't be absolutely needed because there will be a negotiated end to the war. But it doesn't look like that's the path the U.S. has chosen. 
I think that that is 100% correct. I think the U.S. is choosing a different path, but we've seen these types of things happen before. I mean, we've mentioned this on this show. I mean, obviously, the Reagan administration came in as a major nuclear blackmail user, but that, of course, backfired, and the people of the United States did not want to see a major nuclear escalation, and so there was huge mobilizations, big changes in Congress, all these different pieces, you know, Reagan's in Reykjavik talking with the Soviets. Obviously, we saw in the context of the Vietnam War the issues that have taken place here. I mean, obviously, we've seen that really the groundswell for the U.S. to fight fascism really came from the masses of people that when the U.S. mass media was coddling Hitler, were saying, hey, Spain is the first shot and we better do something now. Of course, they didn't. And we see where we ended up. But it was really the masses of people who wanted to confront and challenge fascism in America and help change the political landscape in the country in order to do so. I think we have seen consistently on a number of issues outside of wars from the civil rights movement to the LGBTQ movement to the movement for women's liberation and so on and so forth, that really the key factor in U.S. politics becoming more peaceful, more pro-people, more social justice oriented, all these different sort of pieces we can think that represent progress over reaction, as so to speak, come 100% from a groundswell of the people, not from the elite politicians who only get on board late in the game to save their own bacon. And I think here's a similar situation where they feel they have a totally free hand because they see that the vast majority of people, whatever their political persuasion, tend to agree with this massive propaganda. And the ones who don't agree don't have a big megaphone like CNN to be able to speak to it, which is, you know, why shows like this are important and why I would encourage people who are looking here on the screen to make a donation just below where our faces are because we need to enhance our, our own ability to reach people. But that being said, you can change the political, in politics they call it moving the Overton window. It's possible to change the calculus of what can happen in a country when those who are in positions of political power feel that their position of power is eroding vis-a-vis -a, -vis a growing people's movement. Now, there's another lesson we can learn about that is rather than just ask somebody to do something for us, we should start to think about how to have more true democracy in America where people have real control over the organs of government, not sending some millionaire a thousand miles away to legislate over things that they don't know anything about. But be that as it may, I think there's a lot of scope and a lot of proof in history, proof of concept that people coming out in large numbers, organizing in a million different ways can change things. And if people think that nuclear war is a bad idea, and I think most people do think it's a bad idea, now is the time to say something before it's too late. It's easy easier to go up the escalation ladder than come down. Everything mitigates towards trying to look tougher than your opponent. So you can't depend on the people who are in the positions of power with their finger on the button to de-escalate. The only way to de-escalate them is to make sure that they feel that the threat of de-escalation in the domestic population is greater than what they view to be the rewards of escalation in the context of the geopolitical theater. Right. The power is in the people. Once the people are mobilized, the purpose of our show, the socialist program, the purpose of your shows on Breakthrough News is to tell the truth. It's part of the battle of ideas against the war machine and the ideas promoted by the war machine, including demonization. Eugene, again, I want to encourage our audience to go and read your article. It's liberationnews.org. It's, is NATO really to blame? And I want to thank you for joining us. And again, urge everyone to tune in to Breakthrough News on Thursday to watch Eugene and Rania Kowalik on the freedom side. And Eugene, you have the Daily Punch-Out podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.